Welcome to the Sky Guide for January. My name is Nick Lom. I was the Curator of Astronomy at Sydney Observatory until late 2009. This Sky Guide can be found on www.sydneyobservatory.com slash blog. We'll start of the Sky Guide by touring the stars visible this month. In the second part of this podcast, we'll consider planets and other special events like eclipses happening this month. Before starting the tour of the night sky, if possible, download the star map that's available each month from this website, then take it outside. Make sure you know the cardinal directions, north, south, east and west. Also, ideally you should have a torch with you, a small torch. Put a little bit of red cellophane in front of the torch so you can look at the star map and look up at the stars without racking your adaptation to the night sky. So let's start off our tour of the night sky and start by facing north in the late evening. And of course in January it does not become dark until fairly late as we have summertime at least in most of the states in Australia. So settle down and look towards the northern sky. Dominating the northern sky is the familiar constellation of Orion. This is always the welcome signpost for the Australian summer sky. It is a quite an unmistakable constellation. High up in the northern sky, almost due north in the evening, it can be recognised through its four stars in a rectangle and three stars in the middle in a row. These three stars are Orion's belt. The star on the lower right of Orion is a reddish star, one of the few stars in the sky that you can actually recognise its colour. It is a star called Beta Goose, a giant star hundreds of times wider than our own sun. The name Beta Goose comes from the Arabic and means the armpit of the giant. So, even though it sounds like a very exotic name, in fact it means something very mundane. It describes the location of the star in an old-fashioned constellation drawing, a drawing for the constellation of Orion. You may be asking why Orion's armpit is at the bottom of the constellation, not at the top. The reason is because the constellation was named the Northern Hemisphere and we are looking at the constellation upside down. So, poor Orion has his head down and his legs above his head, not a comfortable position. The star diagonally opposite Orion is another bright star, but without Betelgeuse's reddish colour. It's a star with a bluish-white colour, a star called Rigel. This is also a very bright star, also a giant star, though not anywhere near as large as uh, Betelgeuse. It's a long way from us, 775 light years from us. That is, light from the star has taken 775 years to reach us. Or we could say that the light that we see from Rigel left it back in the 1200s or 1300s, which is of course a very long time ago. Rigel is a star that's fairly late in its life cycle. 
unlike our own sun, which is converting hydrogen to helium, Rigel is converting helium to carbon and oxygen. Stars use that kind of fuel only at a very late stage of their life cycle. The star is fairly hot. Its temperature is 11,000 degrees Celsius, very much hotter than our own sun, the surface temperature of which is around 5,500 degrees. Rigel has a distant companion as well, to the star circling around it, but it's a long way from the main star of Rigel. One of the many nice things about looking at Orion is that it can be used to signpost to find other stars and star groupings in the sky. Let us extend the line through the three stars of Orion's belt, that is the three stars in a row, towards the left or towards the west, and we reach a bright star, a star called Aldebaran, and that is the brightest star in the constellation of Taurus the Bull. Aldebaran is a reddish-orange star. Its colour is not quite as obvious as that of Betelgeuse, but it's still not the usual white colour that we can see from most stars in the sky. Aldebaran is a giant star, about 40 times as white as our own sun and shining with a brightness about 350 times that of our own sun. Its distance is 65 light years, so light left it 65 years ago. Aldebaran is in this group of stars that form an upside down V, that is the letter V in the sky. And looking for those stars is the easiest way to find the constellation of Taurus the Bull and Aldebaran. What is interesting is that the V-shaped group of stars are much further away than Aldebaran. Aldebaran is actually between us and the other stars in that group. Those stars in the group all form part of one cluster, a cluster called the Hyades. The stars of the Hyades are 150 light years away from us. This particular cluster of stars, the Hyades, are all at the same distance and they all move in the same direction in the sky. They were all formed at the same time because of their geometric properties and the properties of the individual stars astronomers can actually determine the age of the cluster of stars. This age for the stars of the Hyades turns out to be 660 million years. This may sound like a long time compared to human lifetime, but in fact it's quite recent, at least in astronomical terms. Our own sun has an age of some, somewhere around 5,000 million years, so 660 million years is relatively recent. If we go a little bit further along the line that we've extended from Orion's belt towards the left, that is, towards the west, and past Aldebaran, we extend the line a little bit further. We reach another compact group of stars called the Pleiades. That is the most famous star cluster in the sky. This group of stars provides a very good test of eyesight. Most people can see six stars, but those with very good eyes can even see a fainter seventh one. There are many legends and stories associated with these stars. According to Greek mythology, 
they are the seven sisters. The story is that something happened to the seven sisters and that is why it is much fainter than the other six. There are similar stories um, told by the Australian Aboriginal people. According to one group of stories, they are the seven ancestral women. One of them fell in love with two spirit men on earth and stayed behind while the other six returned to the sky. The one sister and the two spirit men became the parents of everything on earth, the originators of everything else on earth. Through a telescope, many more than seven stars can be seen. Hundreds of stars. Photographs of the stars show that there are bits of gas and dust floating around many of the stars in the cluster. It was first thought by astronomers that these bits of gas and dust are the remnants of the gas and dust from which the cluster of stars, the Pleiades, formed. However, when the astronomers measured the velocities of the gas and dust as well as the stars, they found that the stars and the gas and dust were moving in a different direction. So there is no connection between them. So it seems that the stars have bumped into this cloud of gas and dust and are moving through it. Now let's extend Orion's belt in the opposite direction. We extend it first towards the left, towards Aldebaran. Now let's extend it towards the right, towards the east and upwards until we reach Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. Sirius is also the brightest star in the constellation of Canis Major, the Great Dog. Occasionally, Sirius is referred to as the Dog Star. It is the brightest star in the sky, so it's worth becoming familiar with its brightness, because if you see anything brighter in the sky, it's likely to be a planet like Jupiter or Venus. Venus, of course, can be the brightest object in the night sky. One of the interesting things about Sirius is that it is a companion star, a very faint companion star, called by astronomers by the name Sirius B. This is not a very exciting name, but it is a simple way of distinguishing the object. However, although it does not have an exciting name, it is a very exciting object, because Sirius B is very compact, exceptionally compact, and also very faint. Astronomers consider that it is a white dwarf star, a star about the size of the Earth, yet at the same time with the mass of the Sun. It is exceptionally compact and very dense. So, for example, if you could take a little bit of material from white dwarf, say, if you take a matchbox amount of material from Series B, it would take several cranes to lift because the mass would be several tons. It is very hard to detect this companion star, Sirius B, as it is overwhelmed by the brightest of the main star. It was first detected in the 1840s by an astronomer called Friedrich Bessel. Bessel noticed that there was a flight wobble in the motion of Sirius. 
that wobble was due to companion star circling around Sirius A. It was finally seen by the optician Alvin Clark in the United States in 1863 when Clark was testing a new telescope, a new large telescope, and he happened to try it out on Sirius, as of course it's the brightest star in the sky, and he noticed there was a faint object next to a bright star, and this is this white dwarf star, which takes 50 years to circle around the main star. The two stars were closer together in 1994 and they were furthest apart in 2019. So over the next few years it will be easier to tell them apart. Yeah. So it will be easier to see Sirius B. Let us just briefly go to the southern part of the sky. So turn around and face south. The Southern Cross and the southeast. It is on its side at this time of the year. The way to recognise the Southern Cross is that there are two pointer stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri, directly below. It's important to look for Alpha and Beta Centauri because the Southern Cross can be easily confused to another group of stars a little higher up in the, in the sky, which are referred to as the False Cross. But the real Southern Cross is much more compact and has the two pointer stars directly below, pointing to the stars in the Southern Cross. Let us use the Southern Cross as a signpost and take a line from the star on the left of the cross and the top star of the cross and take the line upwards and we reach a very bright star almost overhead, a star called Canopus. That is the second brightest star in the sky, almost as bright as Sirius. This completes the guide to the stars in the January night sky. We will continue with the second part of this podcast talking about the planets and other phenomena and other special events that are happening in the January night sky. This is the description of the planets and other events happening in January 2010. In the 7th of January, so on the 7th of this month, we have the 400th anniversary of the Italian scientist Galileo first pointing a telescope to Jupiter and making a huge discovery. He discovered that there are four moons circling around Jupiter. He first turned the telescope towards Jupiter on the 7th of January. He saw Jupiter surrounded by three little stars, three faint stars in a row. He thought that was a little bit unusual, so he looked again the next night and he found again there were three faint objects um, around Jupiter, again in a row, but in a different configuration than the evening before. So he was rather mystified. He tried the next evening, but it was cloudy. Then the following evening, the 10th of January and the 11th of January, he looked again and finally he realised that these are four moons circling around Jupiter. This is a huge discovery because until then it was considered Earth was the centre of the solar system, centre of the universe, everything moved around the Earth. But here was a clear demonstration that there were objects, moons circling around another object in our solar system. 
few days earlier, on the third Sunday, the third of January, the Earth will be closest to the Sun. This is what astronomers call perihelion. Now, it does not actually mean that it will be hotter because we're closer to the Sun. The real reason why that we have summer and winter is the tilt of the Earth's axis. But the fact that we are closer to the sun in our summer does mean that our summers are a little bit uh, hotter than they would be otherwise and they're also a little bit shorter because when the Earth is close to the sun the Earth is moving faster around the sun than at other times. This month we have two full moons during the months. This is a relatively rare event, happens roughly every three years. The second full moon in the month, which will happen on Saturday the 30th, is called a blue moon. It's, uh, it is related to the comment that people make that uh, things will happen once in a blue moon, meaning that events take place fairly rarely. Well, blue moons happen roughly once every three years, relatively rare. But what is even more rare this year in 2010 is that there will be two months when there are two full moons in the months. There is one set in January and there will be another set of uh, full moons in March. So in just in two months time um, there will be two full moons in, uh, in March and that is unusual and this will not happen again until 2029. The main planet visible during the months is Jupiter. It is very low in the west, but still easily visible. So on the 7th of January, if anybody has a chance to look through at a telescope at, at Jupiter to commemorate uh, uh, Galileo's observation of 400 years earlier, then it's still possible to do so, but it is getting fairly low in the sky. On the 18th of January, the crescent moon is just below and to the right or north of the planet, so that should be a spectacular sight. The planet Mars becomes visible, laying the nice eastern sky in the middle of the month, and late in the month, Mars will be at its closest for a number of years, it will be at opposition. Also, on the 30th of January, the full moon is above and to the right or east of the planet. This completes the guide to the night sky in January 2010. It's available from the Sydney Observatory blog, www.sydneyobservatory.com blog. Of course, you can get more detailed information and monthly star maps from our annual publication, The Australian Sky Guide, which is produced each year for Sydney Observatory by myself. It's published by Powerhouse Publishing at a bargain price of only $16.95. You can buy it personally from Powerhouse Museum, from Sydney Observatory, and also from good bookstores. You can also order it online for an additional postage fee from www.bauhausmuseum.com slash publishing or directly from the blog www.sydneyobservatory.com slash blog 
but is a banner at the top right which takes you directly to the order form for the Australian Sky Guide.